this is, today is the last of the particular um, attributes of God that fall under the, the greatness category as we've sort of been demarcating the attributes of God as we go. Next week's topic of the holiness of God kind of bridges the gap, falls a little bit under both in terms of both the greatness and the goodness of God. Um, and today we're hitting the last of that, the, the, the attributes that we'll cover at least where God is very unique. The greatness in which He alone sits and exists and His sovereignty is one of those things. Last week, if you remember, James capably, admirably covered basically three attributes. Uh, if you remember the, the omnis, the omnipresence of God, the omniscience of God, and the omnipotence of God. Omni, all, right? Omni, unlimited. And a couple of weeks ago, I covered eternal, the eternality of God and how God even transcends time in such a, a way that is other than us. But that idea of the unlimitedness, nature, character, attributes of God helps to, to lead naturally to today's topic of sovereignty, right? I mean, if, if, if God is omniscient, if God is omnipresent, and especially if God is omnipotent, okay, all and unlimited in power and in knowledge and in presence and eternal in the sense of being outside of time and, and yet acting in time, then it makes total sense. Ah, total sense is a little bit too strong because even as I've been studying it and thinking about it, my mind sort of starts to go into a high-speed wobble quite a bit. But it works together, <laughs> the sovereignty of God with the omnis of God. And so keep in mind all that we've covered and how it connects just with who God is. But let's pray before we go any further. Father, we want to, we want to know you. We don't want to just kind of learn some neat factoids, but we want to know you for the sake of, for the sake of better worship, for the sake of better living, for the sake of better faith, for the sake of the glory of your name so much, so often in the Bible you say, I'm going to do this because I want my name to be known. I'm going to do this because I want my name to be glorified. And so, Lord, as we learn of your character, as we then live our lives in response, glorify yourself. Father, please help me to get out of the way and not to be confusing. But in all of this, uh, draw our hearts to worship you, to be amazed at you, and to just think rightly of you and ourselves in the midst of the circumstances of life that are going to come, come our way after we leave this building and in the week ahead. We thank you for your, your knowledge and your control and your power and your, your grace, your goodness, your kindness, your love for us in the midst of all of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have the handout, you can see... A couple of definitions of the sovereignty of God. The first one being from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. He says this, God's sovereignty is His exercise of rule as sovereign or king over His creation. Matt Waymire expands a little bit. And he says, the supremacy of God 
in which he reigns over the entire universe, exercising his absolute and unqualified power and authority to do whatever he is pleased to do in and through his creation. The sovereignty of God is an often debated topic. It's an oft debated attribute of God. In those definitions, though, you, you, you can kind of understand why, because you can hear the strength and the, the, the force of those definitions. And when you, when you read something like, well, God's sovereignty is the supremacy of God in which He reigns over the entire universe, exercising His absolute and qual- unqualified power and authority to do whatever He is pleased to do in and through His creation, you can kind of understand why we, in our own sinful and, and, and prideful and independent and autonomous nature and inclinations, would push against that. But one of the books that I was reading was G.I. Packard's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I loved how he, he started his book this way. He said, I do not intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in His world. I read that sentence. I go, oh, okay. I guess it's simple. But he goes on and he says, there's no need, for I know that if you are a Christian, you believe this already, which again, I just, I I love reading that. And he says, how do I know that? Because I know that if you are a Christian, you pray. And the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. In prayer, you ask for things and give thanks for things. Why? Because you recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have had already and all the good that you hope for in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence when we are on our knees. We know that it is not we who control the world. It is not our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. Every good thing that we desire for ourselves and for others must be sought from God and will come, if it comes at all, as a gift from His hands. Sorry for that typo, not this hands, His hands. If this is true, even of our daily bread, and the Lord's Prayer teaches us that it is, much more is it true of spiritual benefits. And this is all luminously clear to us when we are actually praying And then I love this next phrase, whatever we may be betrayed into saying in argument afterward, Packer's just basically saying, hey, make your words and your statements actually line up with your actions. In effect, therefore, what we do every time we pray is to confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. And the very fact that a Christian prays is thus proof positive that he believes in the lordship of his God. The sovereignty of God as we consider it, is going to present some logical and practical difficulties. I don't deny that, but I do attribute most of that to our humanity and to our own brokenness as opposed to a brokenness on God or in His communication. Some of the difficulties are going to include things like, well, how does divine sovereignty and human responsibility or the notion of free will, how do they and do they cooperate, correlate, interact. Or the notion that some people will say, well, God is generally sovereign in the sense of He he oversees the big things, but God doesn't have specific sovereignty in the sense of the the details of life. And I don't, some people say, "I, I don't see how that can possibly 
reconcile. But in the midst of, of some of the difficulties that are going to come as we think about God's sovereignty, here are some anchors, okay? Here's some anchors for your thinking as you encounter those difficulties, even in your own response to what I hope is just going to be biblical propositions that force you to, re- to, to deal with those truths. And they all center around the nature and character of God. Right? We run into difficulties and we run into issues when we try to put God into a box or make God like us, which you can see in Scripture that God does not appreciate and God does not like that. But God is independent. Right? We've covered that already. God exists on His own, in and of His own, with no need for anyone or anything else. God is unchanging. And so much of this is contradictory to who we are that we have trouble then understanding God and His godness. Like we covered, God is eternal. God is all the omnis that that James taught last week. And and we're going to find out more of who God is in the days and weeks ahead. And so hopefully the last few weeks even as we've been going through this class are, are setting God apart as unique in your heart and in your mind. Because the more that God is set apart as unique in our minds and in our hearts, the more that we can willingly and ably and trustingly accept some of the, some of the truths that are, that are hard to, to fully reconcile or to comprehend, as it were. Because here's the thing, the, the scope of belief, the scope of what we teach at Mission Road regarding God's sovereignty is that it's total. It's total. That is, the exercise of God's rule extends across the breadth and the depth of all creation. From from the grandest event in human history or in, 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 in the created world around us to the most minute happenstance of our lives. God's sovereignty reigns over all of that. I'll remind you again of what Dr. Waymeyer said in his definition. God's sovereignty is the supremacy of God in which He reigns over the entire universe, exercising His absolute and unqualified power and authority to do whatever He is pleased to do in and through His creation. And really, if we stop to think about it, this is crucial for our ability to anchor our faith in God. That is, the exercise of His rule, if it's not complete, right? If there is an area where He is not sovereign, an aspect of life where He does not reign, which is out of His control then, frankly, life and faith and salvation are really just a roll of the dice in the hope that God can somehow make things come together at the end and adjust and adapt and respond just right in order to bring about what He said He will bring about and to do what He kind of hopes and desires but isn't really sure that He's going to be able to make it happen. I mean, the dominoes fall really fast. So J.I. Packer said, I don't intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign 
in his world. Well, good for Packer, but we're going to try and prove it here just for a moment. And we're going to look at what Scripture has to say and how God's revealed truth defines the nature and extent of his sovereignty over his creation. And I was a little bit distressed as I was considering trying to teach this because, I mean, if, you, if, if, if I look in the, 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 the theology books and the theology curriculum and, and, frankly, the whole books, not even just the sections of books, but the whole books that are written on this, and I'm like, man, what am I supposed to do with all this? Because, because the areas in which God's word even proclaims his sovereignty and his rule are just... They're, 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 it's everything, and it's just category after category after category, and so I'm just giving you, I'm, I'm, we're dipping our toes into the pool today, and I'm not even going to be able to cover very many of the implications, but I am going to try to help you see the depth and the breadth, the comprehensiveness of God's rule and reign, and so the first category here, as we dip our toes into this pool is his sovereignty over creation. And I mean, first, all, all we have to do is just even consider Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, and then, and, then, and then it goes through the whole list of what God created. God, God existed, as we already talked about, and then God, the sovereign, God, the king, God, the creator, spoke and formed what we know to be our universe, our world, The, the, the deist approach to life and faith would say, yeah, 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 we get that. God, God created, but then he sort of stepped back. You know, he, he pulled that, that, that chain and started the, the, the world spinning and, and then just sort of says, well, I hope, hope it all goes okay. But Scripture is clear that contra that view, God has not removed from the world and its workings, but rather God is sovereign both as creator, but even as sustainer, as king who ordains the events of the world, the happenings of the world. And so let's look a little bit at what Scripture has to say about these things. You can either just listen as we turn from Scripture to Scripture, or you can follow with me. But Psalm 135 Verses 5 to 7 is going to get us kicked off. It says this, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven, and in earth, in the seas, and in all the deeps, He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. Th think about that statement right there. And the next time you walk outside and you feel the wind on your face, or if you're different from me and you feel the wind blow your hair, just think. That came from God's treasury. God sent that wind. This is, this is not a, a, an arbitrary act of, of nature that God said, ooh, look at that. I didn't know that was going to happen. 
Now, God, in his creative fiat, said these are the general rules and principles of nature, which we in science can, can look at and observe and, and systematize and stuff like that. And so we understand what God does in order to bring those about in the rule that he has created in creation. And yet, that doesn't then pull that out of God's sovereignty, Right? I mean, this is, this, is what, this is how God rebukes, and I, I put down Job 38 to 41. That's four chapters. We're not going to read it all. But that's the basis of, of God's rebuke to Job at the end of the book, as, as after Job and his friends are debating and philosophizing. And God just says, look, have you? And he talks about creation. Can you? And he talks about his own very specific control over nuances, over great events, over little tiny nuances of life and creation. And this is supposed to put Job in his place because, of course, Job's reaction is, well, no, I haven't, and no, I can't. And God's, God's saying, well, yes, I have, and yes, I do, and yes, I can. Look over in Mark chapter 4 with me. And again, we're just dipping our pools in. There's plenty of ways in which you can explore this further. There's books to read. There's conversations with pastors and elders you can have, whatever you may like. But I just want to introduce you to these truths and hopefully blow your mind a little bit. Mark chapter 4. I mean, we know this, but we have to think about the implications of this. On that day, this is Jesus himself, when evening came, Jesus said to them, let's go over to the other side of the sea. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind in the, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? That's, that's God exercising his rule over creation. Right? And we can, maybe we can look at that and say, wow, that's an amazing miracle. It's, it's, it's not a miracle for God. It's not an out-of-the-box, an out-of-the-ordinary event, though. Because, because God, God says storms, come on, and they come. God says, storms, hush, and they hush because God is sovereign over creation. And not just the big things, but even the little things. Look, look back in Matthew 6 if you want. Matthew 6, 26, it says this. Look at the birds of the air that they don't sow, nor do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How, how different from the deist idea of just world, go on. I hope you do okay. How different from that is this? The heavenly Father feeds, cares for, knows the details of the little birds, the little, the little sparrows that just peck on the ground, and, and God says, no, no, no. I know what you need. And look, and look at them. I feed them. I care for them. That's how, from the greatest to the detailed, God is sovereign over nature, and, and that includes both blessing and disaster, okay? Lamentations 3. Lamentations 3. 
verse 37 to 38. Lamentations comes after the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah, and Jeremiah is grieving that loss. But look at what he says. Verse 37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? And this is where it maybe starts to get a little bit uncomfortable in our own thinking. But the biblical truth is that God's sovereignty God's rule extends over every event. Every event. The, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. The, 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 the sea, right, that, that miraculously opened up for the good of the Jews as they left Egypt and then closed down for the destruction of the Egyptians. God, God controls that God controls famine, God controls earthquakes, God controls crops, God controls insects. You know, any, anything and everything biblically is attributed to God's control for God's purposes. And so we have to understand that both blessing and even disaster do come from God, that, that God's sovereignty and His rule extend over those things. I mean, think about, think about just even the, the examples of Jonah's experience, right? I mean, Jonah tries to run from God, and he gets thrown into the ocean, and what does God do? And the, the verbiage here is really uh, interesting. He, it says that he appointed, right? And so first, he appointed a fish to eat Jonah. That's kind of a bummer. But God, God appointed that fish and said, go, go swallow Jonah. Okay? And then Jonah survived. And it turns out then God appointed that the fish should go ahead and vomit him out up on the land. And then, in the midst of Jonah's hissy fit and his whining, God appointed a plant to grow up over him, to give him a little bit of a shade because he was hot. And God appointed that plant to help him. And then God appointed a worm to destroy the plant to bring hardship back on Jonah for the sake of God's desire to teach Jonah and to help him see God's character and God's person. I mean, just a worm. It's just, it's just amazing. It's mind-blowing. But it's something that, I, if you're like me, we often don't necessarily think always about. But all those things, the blessing, the disaster, the large to the small, I really have to keep going. God is sovereign over humanity. Think about the kings and the authorities that we see in the Bible. One of my, one of my favorite, I just read through this whole story with, uh, with my kids, and just one of the amazing stories is what happens in, uh, in Daniel. Uh, if I can get there. Uh, Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 to 35. Nebuchadnezzar has this insane dream that God then brings about. And my kids were, were dying laughing, trying to picture this. 
God basically turns Nebuchadnezzar into a human cow. You know, says, you've been too prideful, you've been too arrogant and attributing all this to yourself, so I'm going to go ahead and humble you. And he turns him into a cow for seven years, and he goes and he eats grass, and his hair grows long, and his fingernails grow long, and, and then God restores his, his reason to him, and he's reinstituted back into, the, into his kingship. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's response. Verse 34, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And again, these are the words from the lips of a man who was the most powerful man on the planet at that time, who looked, who looked at his vast empire and said, yes, that's mine. And that's why God said, go eat some grass. And now he, he, he has this perspective. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's amazing. You can look at Ezra 1.1. It says God stirred up Cyrus to do God's will. God is sovereign over the nations as well. If we consider, again, in Daniel chapters 10 through 11, the visions as, as God reveals to Daniel what he is going to do in the, coming, uh, in the coming years, these are with nations, whole world superpowers, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do this, and it all comes to be. If we think about, if we see what, what God says in Isaiah Chapter 13, verse 17, God says, many, many years before this actually happens, behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them, the Babylonians, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. All throughout the Bible, God says, you, nation, you're my servant to do my will. And when I'm done with you, I'll be done with you. And when I want you, I will bring you. Because God is sovereign. He exercises His rule even over the nations, which would seem to exercise rule on our world. We see that God is also sovereign. Oh, man. Okay, so I'm going to leave this to you. But you, you need to go and look at Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 and Genesis 12 sometime. Because the, the correlation of those is, is really easy to miss. So just circle that and I'll leave that for you, okay? But don't miss it. Because it just, again, it shows, it shows God's power. It shows God's control. And now you're, really, you're going to miss what I'm going to say for the next 90 seconds as you go look at those, aren't you? But I'm moving on because God is also sovereign over individuals. Okay? Sometimes it's easy to say, well, yeah, God, I get how God is orchestrating. This is kind of that... that the difference between general sovereignty and specific sovereignty, but, but God also is sovereign over individuals. We see some of this in Proverbs. Specifically looking first in Proverbs 16. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose even the wicked, for the day of evil. Verse 9, 
the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his individual steps. The implications of that are just staggering, right? In the sense of when, 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 when something happens to us, when something is said to us, when painful circumstances are brought against us, our response to that is informed by this truth, our understanding of just that circumstance in and of itself is tremendously informed by this truth that whatever is said and whatever is done and whatever we are encountering is not a surprise and is not a mistake, even on the very individual level. In Proverbs 19.21, it says, Many plans are in a man's heart. This is a little bit of the flip side. But the counsel of the Lord is what will stand. So on the flip side, man cannot do that which God does not will to be done. You see, the, you see how the, 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 the corollary truth to that? The idea of, you know, luck or ill fate or you know, bad luck or that type of stuff is just it's just not biblical. It doesn't exist. I mean even down to down to things like our own our own bodies, if we look at first Samuel one five. I was talking about a couple, Elkanah and Hannah. It says, but to Hannah, Elkanah would give a double portion for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. It was, it was not an accident. It was not a mistake. It was not a uh, just an unfortunate circumstance. This is the, the, the providential working of a sovereign God in the midst of a very individual life. Which brings it personally to the idea of you. Now look, look with me at Psalm 139, and we, we should all embrace this content and these truths as some of our own personal philosophy and mantra. Psalm 139, verse 13, For you, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. It's a great reminder for us personally to live in that truth. There is no one who knows us more intimately, no one who, had, who has more control over our lives, no one who knows what has been and what is and what will be for our lives like God does. I mean, he ordained the days when as yet there was not even one of them. 
And this is in Matthew 6 when, when Jesus is giving the, the Sermon on the Mount. And he, and he says, look, don't, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Why? Because God, in His sovereignty, in His exercise of His rule and reign as King over all, God knows your needs and His sovereignty includes caring for you. So don't be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God and all those things will be added to you because your sovereign King cares for you. Those details, honestly, those, those... are sometimes the hardest for me. Maybe you're, maybe you're like me or maybe you're not, but for me, it's almost easier to trust God's sovereignty in the midst of the, the large-scale events. It's, easy, it's almost easier for me to say, oh yeah, God's sovereign over the possibility of World War III. Or God is sovereign over this disaster over here or this conflict over here or this situation over here than it is to trust in God's sovereignty when my car breaks down or when an unexpected bill comes or when a health crisis strikes or frankly when bad weather interrupts my plans right oh yeah God you've got control of that but you don't have control of it. don't you know what I was going to do today that's that's kind of what immediately rears up in my own heart and yet the, the, the truth is, there is no level of, of detail or minutia in our lives over which God does not exercise His will and His desires. And you know how much can shake that from Him? Nothing. The plain fact of the matter is there's not a single slice of my or your life that is outside of God's sovereign reign, and control and plan. He knows he's guiding and he's working. Otherwise, how can Romans 8.28 be true? How can we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God if he's not sovereign over every detail? If he's not sovereign, we cannot know that. But since he is sovereign, we can know. And, and if you've been here any length of time, you remember Pastor Rick's sermons on the idea, the, the word know, K-N-O-W. How crucial that is. This is what Jerry Bridges says. Regardless of our theological position concerning miracles occurring today, we all accept without question the validity of the miracles recorded in Scripture, but to believe in the sovereignty of God when we do not see His direct intervention in those little in those little tiny ways, in the unseen ways, when God is, so to speak, working entirely behind the scenes through ordinary circumstances and ordinary actions of people in your life and in my life, that is even more important because that is the way that God usually works. And yet, just because we don't see it as extraordinary or miraculous or directly divine intercession, that it does not take those things outside of God's sovereign rule and reign. Now, does this idea of God's sovereignty over every area of life, even the actions and the schemes of man, does that mean we're just robots? No. Does it mean God is actually at fault for sin and pain? No. We can look briefly at MacArthur and Mayhew's efforts at explaining and synthesizing these things. They talk about primary or direct causation and secondary or indirect causation and 
you know, maybe like Jonah's fish or Nebuchadnezzar's miraculous cow transformation, God is working in the ways that, that, are, that are just directly and, and divinely extraordinary. And then on the secondary or the indirect ways, God also works through natural means. He, you will see it in the Bible where He even incites or hardens or stirs up men according to their natural inclination to accomplish His purpose. And you can think of it this way, and you can go down those, those trails of trying to, okay, well, God does this that way, and in this situation, He's doing this that way. And the problem is, I think you're going to end up with a mental cramp too much because you cannot end up perfectly sorting and categorizing God and His ways because the broad principle applies. God is perfectly sovereign and in control. He is the King who exercises His absolute and unqualified power and authority. Let's look real quickly at a biblical perspective of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, though, to see, are they in conflict? And you know the passage in Acts. Well, let's set your eyes on it. Look over in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, as Peter is talking to those in Jerusalem about the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus, he says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in the midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over, here's sovereignty, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And what he's going to go say is, because of that action, you're responsible and you have a response of repentance that is necessary. Look back in Luke, and I know we're, we are flying, and I want to just expose you to these things. Luke chapter 22. In the midst of all of this, if you have any questions going forward, please Try to meet up with a, a pastor or an elder and just talk these things through. We'd love to be able to help you process it and figure out how, how to respond in life. But in Luke chapter 22, 21, it says this, Behold, Jesus is talking at the, the Last Supper. Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe! to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus does not let Judas's guilt off the hook simply because it is according to the foreordained and predetermined plan of God that Judas does what he does. Right? So we can't fall into the ditch of, well, God's sovereignty then negates human responsibility, but you also can't fall into the ditch of, well, the fact that men are responsible for their actions and their words actually means that God is not sovereign. And we also can't rationalize or explain beyond that because we have to remember the nature and the character of God. I mean, think about the biblical writers. Did, did Paul write to a church and he's like, okay, church, I want you, I've got to make sure you understand the nuances and the, and the, the ordus salutis. I want you to understand how does God exactly foreordain and interact how he saves with man's choice to do that. He doesn't do that. He says man needs to believe and a man is culpable for not believing and repenting and God is sovereign in salvation. 
Did Isaiah go off on a rabbit trail to make sure the Israelites knew the, 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 the order of divine decree when he's telling them how he's going to bring up and down the nations and carry out his plan for them? No. He just says God is going to do this and then he's going to hold these nations responsible for what they have done. The biblical writers fully recognize the fullness of divine sovereignty and human responsibility as truths without inherent conflict. And so be warned against trying to, to rationalize them as someone whose thoughts and whose ways are so much lower than God, whose thoughts and whose ways are so much higher. And it's important that we always remember who is in charge. That the one who is in charge is the holy one. He's the just one. He's the sinless one. He's loving. And so it's important even in the midst of this to remember that God, God does not cause sin. And God does not tempt anyone to sin. Right? James 1.13 makes that very clear. And then frankly, you just, just read, I know we all kind of cringe maybe when we get to Leviticus, but read Leviticus and consider the holiness of God and how God establishes that as the very basis of the law. He says, do this, do this, do this, for I, the Lord, am holy. Causing sin or tempting people to sin would, would desecrate the holiness of God. And as an immutable and unchanging God, God's holiness is never desecrated, never degraded, and never changed. So... Now that you have a complete handle on the sovereignty of God, let's consider the application of it in about 16 seconds each. First, it's a good reminder for all of us, just give thanks in the midst of every circumstance, especially when good things come. Remember what James says, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow, right? So, so when you're feeling blessed, and when you receive a good gift, like, thank your good, sovereign Father. I mean, how often do we sort of say, wow, that was, that was really cool, and then just move on with life? And we need to maintain perspective during hard times. And this is Job 1. Think about everything that happened to Job. He lost children. He lost animals. He lost crops. He lost wealth. And what did he say? The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those were not removed from God's sovereignty in Job's mind, and they should not be removed from uh, the sovereignty of God in our mind, in the big ways or in the little ways. I mean, think about, think about the, the, the silly little example of a football player who, you know, then scores a touchdown, and he's like, yes, you know, or kneels down to pray. But then, you know, only when the blessing happens, when the touchdown happens, he, what about the guy who drops the, the touchdown pass or, or the guy who, you know, maybe blows the Super Bowl by holding on at the very end and causing a foul? He didn't point up, you know. But in, in all those circumstances, in all those areas, God is sovereign. And Jerry Bridges warns us about a one-sided view of God's sovereignty, that God's sovereignty must come into play in the midst of hard times and struggles as well. He says, we either subconsciously or deliberately imply that God intervenes at specific points in our lives, but is largely only an interested spectator most of the time. 
when we think this way, even unconsciously, we reduce God's control over our lives to a stop-and-go, in-and-out proposition. Our unconscious attitude is that the rest of the time, we are master of our fates, or conversely, the victims of unhappy circumstances or uncaring people that cross our paths. That's one of the dangers of when we say, well, man, in the providence of God, such and such worked out so well for us. But then we never say, in the providence of God, such and such worked out to my own struggle or pain or hardship. But when we put all of that under God's sovereignty, we can then deal with the Lord as the next points come to say, look first to the one who has the power in the time of need. And so when we have a time of need and when we have a time of struggle, we should be like the psalmist and say, from where does my help come from? In this circumstance that is such a pain and a hardship, well, it's not from me and it's not from the people around me, but it is the one who has the power and the strength. And they, they say, he says in another psalm that some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Why? Because he's sovereign, because he's king. And then I know maybe you think, okay, well, this is just trite and it's a spiritual platitude, but you know this idea of Lord willing? It's a really good reminder. We should use that in our vocabulary and in our writings and in our prayers far more. You know, the, the, the old writers used to write, uh, to, to end their writings with Deo volente, okay, God willing. This is what James says. Why, why do you say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to go to such and such a city and on such and such a day and we're going to do such and such a business transaction and I'll make a profit? And he's saying, well, you should actually just say, if the Lord wills, and then he adds this, he goes, I will live and I'll go and I'll do this business and I'll actually make a profit. You see how he says, first off, your very existence is dependent upon the sovereignty of God, that God sustains the breath in your lungs, much less the very details of your supposed business proposition. Okay, so consider that, and um, just don't be ashamed to say, Lord willing, God willing, because He's King over all. All right. Thank you, Lord. For this time, for your truth, magnify your name and your character in our hearts, lives going forward, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.